Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 8 of Mongols and Mamluks called The Fall of Antioch. In the last episode we heard how Baibars became Sultan of the Mamluk dynasty in Egypt. Baibars has been called the second Saladin because he led the most determined attack on the Crusaders since Saladin a century before who recaptured Jerusalem and nearly destroyed the Crusader states. But Unlike Saladin, Baibars was not famed for his chivalry and respect towards his Christian enemies. In fact, he was the exact opposite of Saladin. He was bloodthirsty and cruel, and his war against the Crusaders was a horrific litany of slaughter and destruction. So, what was happening outside Outremer? Well, the Mongols were still the greatest power on the planet, but after the great Khan Monka's death in 1259, they fragmented into four separate Khanates, which were first Mongolia together with China in the east under Kublai Khan, second the so-called Golden Horde, which was sighted in modern Russia between Kiev and Mongolia, third the Chagatai Khanate in Central Asia in modern Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, and the fourth, which was the most relevant to the Crusaders, the so-called Ilkhanate based in Persia and the Middle East, which was ruled first by Hulagu, who was the one who sacked Baghdad. The name Ilkhanate just means people of the Khan in Turkish. Now the problem for the Mongols was that when they fragmented they fought amongst themselves and lost their overwhelming military power. So while they were still powerful and important in their different regions, for example in China Kublai Khan defeated the Chinese Song dynasty and occupied the whole of China, uh, but they were no longer aiming for world domination in the way that they had been before. For the Crusaders they were still a useful potential ally and they were still a constant threat to the Mamluks in Egypt. But curiously, I think this actually worked against the Crusaders since Baibars was so worried about a combined attack on Mamluk Egypt by both the Mongols and the Crusaders that he wanted to eliminate the Crusaders completely. Whereas before the Mongols arrived, the Muslim states had actually quite liked having the Crusader cities on the coast because they brought a lot of trade and prosperity. And what about medieval Europe? Well, the French King Louis IX, who'd led the Seventh Crusade, was still the most powerful monarch in Christian Europe, and he was still interested in crusading. Indeed, in 1270, he led an attack on the Emir of Tunis in what is known as the Eighth Crusade in the hope of establishing a Christian power base in North Africa, but the expedition turned into a disaster and Louis himself died from dysentery. So the end result was that the Crusaders in Outremer were pretty much left to defend themselves against Baibars and the Mamluks, who were intent on destroying the Crusader states one by one. And we'll rejoin the narrative as Baibar set his sights on the great Crusader city of Antioch. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) 
It was in the autumn of 1266 that Baibars sent troops to attack Antioch. But his generals were sated with loot and were unenthusiastic. Bribes from Beaumont and the commune induced them to abandon the attempt. Baibars was furious at his deputy's weakness. He himself allowed the crusaders no respite. In May 1267, he appeared once more before Acre by displaying banners that he'd captured from the Templars and the Hospitallers. He was able to approach right up to the walls before the ruse was discovered, but his assault on the walls was repulsed and he contented himself with ravaging the country countryside. The headless bodies were left in the gardens around Acre until the citizens ventured out to bury them. When the crusaders sent ambassadors to ask for a truce, he received them at Safed, where the whole castle was encircled with the skulls of murdered Christian prisoners. Life at Acre was not made easier by a renewal of the war between the Venetians and the Genoese for the control of the harbour. On the 16th of August 1267, the Genoese Admiral Liceto Grimaldi forced his way into the port with 28 galleys after capturing the Tower of Flies, which stood at the end of the breakwater. But after 12 days, he took 15 of his ships to Tyre for repairs. During his absence, a Venetian fleet of 26 Six galleys appeared and attacked the remaining Genoese. Five Genoese ships were lost in the battle and the others fought their way through to Tyre. Early in 1268, Baibars set out once more from Egypt. The only Christian possessions south of Acre itself were the Templar Castle of Athlet and the lawyer John of Ebelin's Tower of Jaffa. John, who had always been treated with respect by the Muslims, died in the spring of 1266. His son Guy had not the same prestige. He'd hoped that the Sultan would honour the truce that his father had made. In consequence, when the Egyptian army appeared before the town on the 7th of March, it was in no state to defend itself. After 12 hours of fighting, it fell into the Sultan's hands. Many of the inhabitants were slaughtered, but the garrison was allowed to retire unharmed to Acre. The castle was destroyed and its wood and marble were sent to Cairo for the great new mosque that Baibars was building there. The Sultan's next objective was the castle of Beaufort, which the Templars had recently taken over from Julian of Sidon. After ten days of heavy bombardment, the garrison surrendered on the 15th of April. The women and children were sent free to Tyre, but the men were all kept as slaves. The castle itself was repaired by Baibars and strongly garrisoned. On the 1st of May, the Mameluke army appeared suddenly outside Tripoli, but finding it well garrisoned, turned equally suddenly towards the north. The Templars from Tortosa and Safita sent hastily to beg the Sultan that their territory might be spared. Baibars respected their wishes and marched swiftly down the Orontes Valley. On the 14th of March he was before Antioch. There he divided his forces into three parts. One army went to capture St. Simeon, the port, thus cutting Antioch off from the sea. The second army moved up to the Syrian gates to prevent
prevent any help reaching the city from Cilicia. The main force, under Baibars himself, drew closely around the city. Prince Beaumont was at Tripoli, and Antioch was under the command of its constable, Simon Mansell, whose wife was an Armenian, related to Beaumont's princess. Its walls were in good repair, but the garrison was hardly large enough to man their long extent. The constable had rashly led out some troops to try to dispute the investment of the city and had been captured by the Mamluks. He was ordered by his captors to arrange for the capitulation of the garrison, but his lieutenants within the walls refused to listen to him. The first assault on the city took place next day. It was beaten back and negotiations were opened once again with no greater success. On the 18th of May, the Mamluk army made a general attack on all sections of the walls. After fierce fighting, a breach was made where the defences ran up the slope of Mount Silpius and the Muslims poured into the city. Even the Muslim chroniclers were shocked by the carnage that followed. By order of the Sultan's emirs, the city gates were closed so that none of the inhabitants might escape. Those that were found in the streets were slaughtered at once. Others cowering in their houses were spared only to end their days in captivity. Several thousands of citizens have fled with their families to the shelter of the huge citadel on the mountaintop. Their lives were spared, but their persons were divided amongst the emirs. On the 19th of May, the Sultan ordered the collection and distribution of the booty. Though its prosperity had been declining for some decades, Antioch had long been the richest of the Crusader cities, and its accumulated treasures were stupendous. There were great mounds of gold and silver ornaments, and coins were so plentiful that they were handed out in bowlfuls. The number of captives was enormous. There was not a soldier in the Sultan's army that did not acquire a slave and the surplus was such that the price of a boy fell to twelve dirhams and a girl to only five. A few of the richer citizens were allowed to ransom themselves. Simon Mansell was set free and retired to Armenia, but many of the leading dignitaries of the government and of the church were killed or were never heard of again. The Principality of Antioch, the first of the Crusader states that was founded in Outremer, had lasted for 171 years. Its destruction was a terrible blow to Crusader prestige, and it brought the rapid decline of Christianity in northern Syria. The Crusaders were gone, and the native Christians fared little better. It was their punishment for their support, not only of the Crusaders, but of those more dangerous foes to Islam, the Mongols. The city itself never recovered. It had already lost its commercial importance, for with the frontier between the Mongol and Mamluk empires now running along the Euphrates, trade from Iraq and the Far East no longer came through Aleppo, but kept to Mongol territory. The Muslim conquerors had therefore no interest in repopulating Antioch. Its importance now was only as a frontier fortress. Many of the houses within its great walls were not rebuilt. The hierarchy of the local churches moved to more lively centres. It was not long before the headquarters, both of the Orthodox and of the Jacobite churches in Syria, were established at Damascus instead of Antioch. With Armenia weakened and Antioch destroyed, the Templars decided that it was impossible to hold their castles in the Aminus Mountains. Bagras and the lesser castle of La Roche du Rossel was abandoned without a struggle. All that was left of the principality was the city of Latakia, 
which had been restored to Beaumont by the Mongols and was now an isolated enclave. And the castle of Quasia, whose lord had made friends with the Muslims of the neighbourhood and was allowed to remain there for seven more years as a vassal to the Sultan. After his triumph at Antioch, Baibars rested a while. There were signs that the Mongols were ready to play a more active role and there were rumours that the French king, St Louis, was preparing a great crusade. When the regent Hugh sent to ask for a truce, the Sultan replied with an embassy to Acre to offer a temporary cessation of hostilities. Hugh had hoped for some concessions and tried to threaten the ambassador by showing his troops in full battle array, but the ambassador merely replied that the whole Christian army was not so numerous as the host of Christian captives at Cairo. Prince Bermond asked to be included in the truce. He was offended when the Sultan's reply addressed him merely as Count because he had lost his principality, but he gladly accepted the respite offered to him. There were minor Mamluk raids into Christian land in the spring of 1269, but on the whole the truce was observed for a year. Meanwhile, the Crusaders tried to set their house in order. In December 1267, King Hugh II of Cyprus died at the age of 14, and the regent Hugh of Antioch, Lusignan, succeeded to the throne as Hugh III. He was crowned on Christmas Day. His accession gave him a surer authority over his vassals, for there was no danger now that his government would abruptly end when his ward came of age. His first task was to try to restore some unity in the new kingdom already before his coronation, he'd managed to compose the old quarrel between Philip of Montfort and the government at Acre. Philip's pride had been humbled by the loss of Turon. He was no longer so anxious to play a lone hand. When Hugh proposed that his own sister, Margaret of Antioch-Lusignan, the prettiest girl of her generation, should marry Philip's elder son, John, Philip was glad to accept the offer. Hugh was thus able to go to Tyre to be crowned in its cathedral, which had been since the fall of Jerusalem the traditional crowning place of the kings. Soon afterwards, Philip's younger son, Humphrey, married Esquiva of Ibelin, younger daughter of John II of Beirut. This reconciliation between the Monforts and the Ibelins was easier as the older generation of Ibelins was extinct. John of Beirut had died in 1264, John of Jaffa in 1266, and John of Arsouf in 1268. After Baibars's recent campaigns, the only Ibelin fief left on the mainland, and indeed the only fief in the kingdom other than Tyre was Beirut, which had passed to John's elder daughter Isabella. She had been married as a child to the king of Cyprus, Hugh II, who died before the marriage was consummated. Hugh III hoped to use her as an eligible heiress to attract some distinguished knight to the Crusader East. In Cyprus, the Ibelins were still the most powerful family. The king soon afterwards won their loyalty by marrying another Isabella of Ibelin, daughter of the constable Guy. Though he managed to make peace between his few remaining vassals, it was less easy to secure the cooperation of the military orders. The Commune of Acre or the Italians, Venice and Genoa, were not going to give up their quarrels at any monarch's bidding. The Templars and the Teutonic Knights resented King Hugh's reconciliation with Philip of Montfort. The Commune of Acre was equally jealous of any favour shown to Tyre and disliked to see the end of the absentee monarchy under which their own power had increased. Nor could King Hugh call in his Cypriot vassals to enhance his authority. His attempt to make his rule effective was therefore doomed to failure. 
foreign affairs were hardly more encouraging. The shadow of Charles of Anjou, who had taken over from King Louis when he died, lay darkly across the Mediterranean world. Great hopes had been built in the east on St. Louis's forthcoming crusade, but in 1270, Charles diverted it to suit his own interests. Louis's death at Tunis that year released Charles from the one altruistic influence that he respected. He was on friendly terms with the Sultan Baibars, but he was personally hostile to King Hugh, against whom he encouraged the claims of Hugh of Brienne to the throne of Cyprus and of Maria of Antioch to that of Jerusalem. It was indeed fortunate for the Crusaders that Charles's main ambitions were directed against Byzantium, for it was clear that any crusade that he assisted would be turned to suit his own selfish ends. The crusading spirit was not, however, entirely dead in Europe. On the 1st of September 1269, King James I of Aragon in Spain sailed from Barcelona with a powerful squadron to rescue the East. Unfortunately, it was almost at once caught in a storm, which caused such havoc that the king and the greater part of his fleet returned home. Only a small squadron under the king's two bastard sons, the Infantas Fernando Sanchez and Pedro Fernandez, continued the journey. They arrived at Acre at the end of December, eager to fight the Muslims. Early in December, Baibars broke his truce with King Hugh and appeared with 3,000 men in the fields before Acre, leaving others concealed in the hills. The Spanish Infantas wished to hurry out at once to attack the enemy and it needed all the tact of the military knights to restrain them. Ignoring this advice, they fell straight into an ambush laid for them by Baibars. Very few of them survived. Throughout the summer of 1270, Baibars remained quiet, fearing that he might have to defend Egypt against the King of France. But in order to weaken the Crusaders, he arranged for the assassination of their one leading baron, Philip of Montfort. To do this, he used the assassins of Syria, who were grateful to him because his conquests freed them from the necessity of paying tribute to the Hospitallers, and they strongly resented the Crusader negotiations with the Mongols, who had destroyed their headquarters in Persia. On Baibars's request, they sent one of their fanatics to Tyre. There, pretending to be a Christian convert, he made his way into a chapel where Philip and his son John were praying and suddenly fell upon them. Before help could arrive, Philip was mortally wounded, surviving just long enough to learn that his murderer was captured and that his heir was safe. His death was a heavy blow to the Crusaders, for John, though he remained devoted to King Hugh, his brother-in-law, lacked his father's experience and prestige. Prestige. Meanwhile, in 1271, Baibars marched again into Crusader territory. In February, he appeared before Safita, the white castle of the Templars. After a spirited defence, the small garrison was advised by the Grand Master to surrender. The survivors were allowed to retire to Tortosa. The Sultan then marched on the huge hospitaller fortress of Crac de Chevalier. He arrived there on the 3rd of March. Next day, contingents joined him from the assassins as well as Al Munsar of Hama and his army. Heavy rain for some days prevented him from bringing up his siege machines, but on the 15th of March, after a brief but heavy bombardment, the Muslims forced an entry into the gate tower of the outer walls. A fortnight later, they broke their way into the inner walls, slaughtering the knights that they met there and taking the native soldiers prisoner. Many of the defenders held out for ten more days in the great tower at the south of the castle on the 8th 
9th of April, they too capitulated and were sent under a safe conduct to Tripoli. The capture of crack, which had defied even Saladin, gave Baibar's control of the approaches to Tripoli. He followed it up with the capture of Akar, the hospitaller castle on the south of the Bukaya, which fell on the 1st of May after a fortnight's siege. Meanwhile, Prince Bohemond was at Tripoli, fearful that it was to share the same fate as his other capital, Antioch. He sent to Baibars to beg for a truce. The Sultan mocked at his lack of courage and demanded that he should pay all the expenses of the recent Mamluk campaign. Then, unexpectedly, at the end of May, Baibars suddenly offered Bohemond a truce for ten years, with no other terms than the retention of his recent conquests. On its acceptance, he set out to return to Egypt, pausing only to besiege the Teutonic fortress of Montfort, which surrendered on the 12th of June after one week's siege. But Baibars's forbearance was really due to an entirely different reason. This was the news of the preparation of a new crusade. Its origin was not this time from France, but from England, where King Henry III had determined at long last to send his son, Prince Edward, on a crusade. It was to be the last crusade to try to save the Holy Land. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Indeed, if you want to leave a review, I'd be delighted to send you a free copy on Audible of the audiobook version of my book called The Byzantine World War, which is about Byzantium and the origins of the First Crusade. Just email me at byzantiumandthecrusades at gmail.com. I've only got a dozen or so free codes, so let me know as soon as possible. And to be clear, I'm sorry, but they can only be used in the US or the UK and not any other countries. Uh, That's just the way it works. And so in the next episode, we'll hear how it was the English who made a last attempt to save Outremer from the Mamluks in what has been called the Ninth Crusade. (laughs) 